You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. Today, we're reappraising movies about Muhammad Ali. For the icon of sports, civil rights, and American history's uh, would be 80th birthday. I decided to do, I don't know, it's a little bit of a one for me, but but I swear I've done my due diligence to make this uh, hopefully uh, accessible and, and fun and entertaining if you're interested um, at all in Muhammad Ali and his legacy, and uh, history shows that most people are, so. And I got a special guest coming up to uh, school us, enlighten us a bit, it's Morgan Campbell, who is a, a terrific writer and broadcaster from the CBC up there in Toronto. He had written last year when uh, One Night in Miami, the Netflix doc Blood Brothers, and Ken Burns' Muhammad Ali doc were all kind of coming out and in the conversation at the same time about why people just never get tired of, of chronicling this, this man's life. Um, but I should say that before we get much further, that uh, Be Real is a part of the Playlist Podcast Network, where you can also find terrific shows such as the Playlist Podcast, Deep Focus, The Fourth Wall, The Discourse, and more. Um, oh, and Yellowstoners. God, don't let me forget Yellowstoners. Uh, you can listen wherever you get your podcasts, whether that be uh, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. And uh, leave us a nice rating if, if you do and if you enjoy what you hear. So I wanted to reflect and justify a little bit off the top just why do a, a movie podcast about Muhammad Ali? I think it's because of his singularity. There's no other athlete where you would be like, let me just take the movies and docs and shows about this person and, and, and cover their life. I, I can't think of any other one where that would even be possible. Muhammad Ali in his life can muster a breadth and depth of emotion through storytelling that is usually only seen in the career of actors. Like if you took every, I don't know, Denzel Washington movie, you would find the tragedy, comedy, charm, gravitas, and sex appeal that you find in Muhammad Ali's life. Most athletes, you know, they can give us that intense bipolarity of like joy when they succeed and disappointment when they fail. But, you know, I don't think they make us like laugh and cry the way that somebody like Muhammad Ali could. I can't tell you how many times just watching docs and interviews and stuff this week he just made me howl he's just so quick and uh affectionate toward what he is doing um and 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 tuned into the audience and everyone is magnetized to him he's he's was like one of the funniest people alive <laughs> while also being um you know, brave and controversial and reviled by so many people unjustly in his time and has this whole back of his career that is a, a Greek tragedy of, of someone who, who, who is cursed, who just, who just can't stop doing the thing that they were great at, which was fighting and enduring and performing pugilistic miracles and that essentially being their, their undoing, their, their curse, their doom. And then, so the other thing here, if you, if you don't know that I want to establish, is that, yes, the the movies that have been made about Muhammad Ali uh, are, are seemingly endless, especially in the documentary space. I mean, I kid you not, there whether you pay attention or not, there is one every six months. 
um, to the extent that like even people who care about Muhammad Ali can't keep up. And they're like, well, what is this one? I was looking at, there's one from 2014 called I Am Ali. And I sort of recognized the poster from Netflix because um, he's, he's wearing that like really cool like white long sleeve tee he used to rock up in Deer Lake, Pennsylvania when he trained in the 70s. I have no idea what that documentary is. <laughs> I, I feel like I've seen most everything that relates to Muhammad Ali, but not that. Um, so, yeah, there were like just three in the last year. You know, there was famously there's the Michael Mann Will Smith movie that like sort of strove to be like the Hollywood ad- adaptation of his life. And it, it, that failed for like interesting reasons. Uh, Ang Lee was going to make a, a Joe Frazier Ali a movie that never happened. Um, I believe Michael B. Jordan right now has the rights to make a limited series. That may or may not happen. Antoine Fuqua did like a two-part uh, thing for HBO called What's My Name, which is basically just um, like footage edited together. It's not my favorite. There, there are docs that are just about Ali's fight with the U.S. government over being a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War. There are docs just about his relationship with Malcolm X. Um... There's a doc just about like his appearances on Dick Cavett's television show. <laughs> There's a movie called The Greatest from 1977 where Ali plays himself in his own life story. I mean, he was literally a movie star in the late 70s. Um, so that's the launch pad that gets us into our conversation with Morgan Campbell. The people just cannot stop telling and retelling Muhammad Ali's story because it is one of our great American stories as a myth, as a polemic, as a document. It never ends. I really love this conversation. I hope you'll stay tuned. If you want any more <laughs> after the Morgan Campbell interview, I'm going to come back and talk briefly about my my three favorite uh, Ali movies. So stay tuned for that. Been chopping trees. I've done something new for this fight. I'd have wrestled with an alligator. That's right. I have wrestled with an alligator. I'd have tussled with a whale. I'd have handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. That's bad. Only last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. Bad dude. Bad. Fast. Fast. Fast! Last night I cut the light off my bedroom, hit the switch, was in the bed before the room was dark. Incredible. Fast! My guest today is a senior contributor to CBC Sports, host of the show Bring It In. He's covered athletics, boxing chief among them for the Toronto Star, the New York Times, and more fine publications. Today he's generously giving us some time to talk about Muhammad Ali films. Morgan Campbell, welcome to the show. Hey, good to see you, Chance. Good to finally connect, too, because it's been like, uh... (laughs) it's been... You've had lots going on. I super appreciate you being willing to squeeze this in before Muhammad Ali's would-be 80th birthday. So it had that. Yes, that's like on Monday. That's that's the idea, yeah. Um, so I just wanted to ask how, I'm not sure, this is not where I normally start interviews. Morgan, I'm not sure how old of a gentleman you are. I'm I think 45. So you were just a toddler when Muhammad Ali retired, Right. Something like that, 42 years ago, 1980? The one Muhammad Ali fight I do remember in real time. I was probably about five years old. And it was Ali, it was either Holmes or Burbick, but it was one of those last two fights. Yeah, sad ones. <laughs> watching, yeah, and watching, but you know, I shouldn't laugh. Well, it's sad, but okay. So I'm watching with my parents. <laughs> I think we're at someone's house because it was like the early days of pay-per-view. And my mom says to my dad, well, which one of them is Muhammad Ali? My dad says, he's the fat one. Oh. And my mom says, well, Pete, they're both fat. <laughs> so <laughs> it was towards the end of his career. Okay, yeah, not not the most glorious moment. But So I'm curious then, so you do remember a live fight, but how did you, through what media did you come to know him when you were growing up? I think part of it is just that I've always been a boxing fan. And so growing up, like I would read Ring Magazine um, and Boxing Illustrated. uh, And I would come to it that way. And like the rare times that they would show his fights on like uh, on NBC, like old fights on a Mm -hmm. Saturday afternoon, they would show an old fight, you know, and interview people about the fight. I would watch that. I would record it. 
Um, yeah, it was a lot harder to come by vintage fights back then because we didn't have YouTube. Um, and then um, because there's always been, especially since like around 1991, so much written about Ali, it's not that hard to find it. So, you know, so I read Thomas Hauser's biography, Ali, his life and times. Um, right. right. You know, Sports Illustrated had a big feature on Ali when he turned 50. I remember mm-hmm. reading that. Uh, there was a point where they reprinted Mark Cram Sr.'s original feature on the Thriller in Manila. So this is like ni- 1994, but they reprinted this story from 1975. Uh, so between all these different sources, like, you know, if you're a boxing nerd, you know, you find ways. And so, I, you know, I was able to get caught up and stay caught up on Ali. Okay, so let's go right to the premise of your uh, New York Times piece from last October, which is the the reason I... I, Yeah, refresh my memory, man. (laughs) Well, it was about this guy called Muhammad Ali. Then people will start making, are continuing to make uh, documentaries and films about him constantly. So let's just go to the central question. Why does the sort of um, Ali content faucet flow so strong like right now? Or, Or maybe, maybe... It's never stops or ebbs. But yeah, I don't do think, think it's ever stopped. Like right now, again, as 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 Ken Burns and his Lou Moore, uh, Professor Lou Moore and, and Johnny Smith, who uh, co-wrote Blood Brothers and co-produced the uh, Netflix documentaries, each of them point out like post George Floyd, like a lot of these Ali stories took on a special uh, resonance because so many people in the United States and beyond were wrestling with questions of of, of race, racism, uh, how it happened, how it plays itself out structurally and also on an individual basis and how Ali's career um, mirrored all of these issues. And then a lot of it is the fact that uh, in the pandemic, a lot of us were stuck at home with nothing to do but binge watch stuff. And so mm-hmm. let's, mm-hmm. let's read all the Ali books. Oh, there's more. Let's read some more. Let's watch all the Ali documentaries because there's, there's a never ending supply of them. Like so many of the battles we talk about, like in the abstract, are things that he dealt with in his real life, but he's this larger than life figure. So whether it's like uh, Jim Crow segregation in Louisville or like the overrepresentation of black men amongst the people fighting and dying in Vietnam, he's there too. Uh, whether it's, um, you know, the politics of boxing, he's there too. Whether it's, uh, you know, like the new pay scale that it, Don King brings to boxing, mm. he's there too. Whether it's corrupt regimes using sporting events like heavyweight title fights to whitewash their image uh, worldwide, he's there too with uh, Mobutu Seseko in what was then Zaire with Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines. Like all, he is, all these things that to us are issues, these are like events in Ali's life and things that he has to deal with. So like, there's always something about what he did that speaks to what we're doing. Right. Um, so one of the documentaries that was about to come out when you when you wrote that piece uh, was the the Ken Burns PBS. Yes, which I still haven't had a I still haven't had a chance to watch. I haven't either. You mean as a as a as a as a parent and as a writer, you haven't had nine hours or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I assume it's very Ken Burnsy. Um, I did. I did. I have read the Jonathan uh, Egg. Uh, book and he's consulting on and that book's awesome um but i think that that book and sort of the ken burns of it all raises a question i wanted to ask you which is i think in the documentary space um people tend to connote or think of ken burns as connoting like authoritativeness like he is just going to cover this whole thing beginning to end and it's going to be exquisitely researched and da, da, da. but what does authoritativeness mean when it comes to someone like muhammad ali is that even like a plausible idea well, yes, because sometimes it has to be only because so many people have written and, and, and shot so many things about Muhammad Ali. It does become difficult to distinguish like what's worth watching from what's not worth watching. And, you know, and this will probably come up more in our conversation. It definitely came up in my conversations with Ken Burns, Lou Moore, uh, Johnny Smith. Um because the thing about Ali, and one of the reasons he has become so popular with storytellers, um, and like his mainstream popularity rose 
in uh, inverse proportion to his ability to speak. Mm. Right. And when he became this middle-aged older man who could not talk, didn't have you know, his brain, you know, he was brain damaged. This is another thing we can talk about. Like, yeah. he was brain damaged, like a lot of fighters are, and he could not talk the way he used to talk. So, what we have are these clips, but also what we have is Muhammad Ali just becoming this blank slate onto which people just project whatever they believe. And so, there's a lot of that in the Ali, like in the, in the Ali canon, like these Ali books and these Ali. Uh, uh, uh documentaries and so a lot of that i know for someone like me like i'm into boxing i'm into the reading and stuff but like it helps for me to be able to just figure out what i don't have to read uh-huh. and i don't have to pay attention to so if ken burns is going to come to it i'm like okay you know what i'll watch it ken burns well when i get the when i get eight hours i'll watch it ken burns but I, I will read jonathan and i's book you know but i won't take the time to watch uh i think espn had done a story a while ago that posited the idea that Muhammad Ali invented rap. Oh. It's like, uh, Muhammad right. Ali did a lot of things. He didn't invent rap. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? He's not the first guy to talk in rhymes in public. Like if Muhammad Ali went to church growing up in Louisville, I promise you, you heard a preacher that spoke in rhymes. Sure, sure. Also the fact that Muhammad Ali, uh, when he would write these poems like angelo dundee his trainer would help him write the poems so if sure. we're going to call muhammad ali you know the godfather of raps and we got to say this old trainer is also the godfather of rap and so, it, so like the idea collapses very quickly so like that kind of stuff right i just want to be able to like dismiss set it aside but jonathan i book let me read this because this will be actually worth reading so let's talk about some of the other the other uh, films that, that you mentioned in there. Can I just ask for your thoughts writ large on how uh, he's portrayed in One Night in Miami to start there? You know what I liked about my, One Night in Miami? Okay. And like for context, like I had just read the, uh, like this morning I read that Carla Rotella essay. Yes. In that literary magazine about the challenges of, of portraying boxing on film. And it starts with Rotella and... Ang Lee, if you, like you listeners, if you don't know who Carlo Rotella is, Google Carlo Rotella. Whatever he writes, just buy it, read it. You're welcome. <laughs> but um, but he writes a lot about boxing, so he wound, winds up as a consultant because Ang Lee wants to make a story, wants to make a movie about Ali and Joe Frazier. Um, and one of the things that Rotella makes really clear in this essay is that Ali and Frazier, like for the action they provided in the ring was so thrilling and their personalities were so big. And there are so many places and ways to listen to them. And like just the spontaneous conversation and trash talk between the two of them, you can't recreate that. It's not worth it to try to recreate it because these two guys were so incredible in real life. Like all you're ever going to do if you try to recreate that stuff on film is make it look worse. Mm -hmm. So with one night in Miami, what I appreciated about that was there was like next to no boxing in that film right so i didn't have to watch like two actors you know lumber around the screen for 20 minutes at a time like not looking at all like boxers <laughs> yeah regina king gets it out of the way fast i think it's the henry cooper fight at the beginnings maybe two minutes it's also very clear like this is not why we're here so let's just keep going yes. and also like the main character in that film is 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 malcolm x like that movie is about malcolm x right and how he relates to these other guys you know, and, and like Ali is the person that brings them all together, but it's about Malcolm X. Um, so the other thing it it kind of saves us from, again, is like an actor trying to like really inhabit the character of Ali because right. it's a difficult thing to do. And most times when you see someone trying to be Ali, all it is is somebody imitating Ali yeah. instead of somebody being Muhammad Ali. Which can't be done, of course, yeah. Yes, because and it's almost an impossible thing to ask someone to do. And again, because like you can do it with Abraham Lincoln, because there's no audio of Abraham Lincoln speaking, so we don't know how he spoke. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, the the actor has more freedom to like, just just try to be this person. Whereas with Ali, like you have to watch all this Ali, and you have to uh, uh, try to sound like Ali, which is a difficult thing to do. Yeah, and so uh, like in 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 one night in Miami, like. They're off, they're freed from those burdens. They don't have to pretend to be some boxer, especially since like Ali was such a, 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 a 
young Ali was yes. such a a singular boxer like you cannot even boxers cannot imitate the way he fought to be that big and that fast right and so you're gonna ask an actor who doesn't box to get on screen and look as fast and fluid and coordinated as muhammad ali like why don't yeah. do it so that was part of what i enjoyed about about one night in miami is that we just they yeah regina king is really smart about like unburdening everyone from having to worry about boxing like Ali or talking like Ali. And you could just see how these different people interacted. Ali, Sam Cooke, uh, Malcolm X, and Jim Brown. Right. I wanted to sort of bounce an idea off you that I think, I, I feel like Michael Mann's 2001 Ali movie, which I know you you were emailing me you hadn't seen in a long time. But one of the things that I feel like it kind of struggles with is it, I think it sort of like disbelieves that the the rhyming, um, charismatic, camera-ready Ali, it sort of disbelieves that that's the real him, and so it ha- it imagines this sort of graver, more serious version of him, which is sort of a, another weird position to put an actor in, where it's just like, p- play this guy as sort of faking it, and then come back over here. But when you watch like footage of Ali, of, of which there are mountains and mountains and mountains, like I think the public Ali also... like kind of is the real him like that's a huge part of who he is and what his persona seems to be okay two things one just as it relates to that yeah movie the best actor in 2001 ollie is james tony playing joe frazier <laughs> yes because this guy's a professional boxer uh, but did a very good Joe Frazier impression, like not impression, but like physically, physically did a very good Joe Frazier. Because he, his, his James Tony's like boxing stance has nothing to do with how Joe Frazier boxed, and he really does it. Yeah, like if if you watch a lot of boxing, like Joe James Tony is like a bigger, thicker, slower version of it. But like the the philly shell except mayweather doesn't call it the philly shell but like the philly shell shoulder roll defense yeah mayweather made famous for this generation like that's what you look at james tony like that's how he made his money getting you to throw the right hand and he would tuck his chin behind his shoulder and roll and then boom walk you right into that counter punch but yeah which was not like joe frazier but but that also is like what a student of boxing James Tony was. He could get on screen and be like, okay, I can move like Joe Frazier. For you guys, I can move like Joe Frazier. But he can also do some acting. Like, he was a very good, like, in that role, he was very good. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the thing about, like, the public Ali versus the private Ali, you see this a lot with boxers. A lot of different big-time athletes. You even see it with Deion Sanders. Like, people who kind of create an alter ego. Mm. Uh, that gets them to where they need to be, whether it's training-wise, performance-wise. Um, and then <laughs> when they run into problems in their personal life and, you know, you like they do the documentary years later and you, they start talking to the people closest to this person, ex, especially the ex-spouses, what you hear a lot is this person stopped being able to recognize where uh, Ric Flair ended and the Nature Boy began. Mm. where public Ali ended and private Ali began. Um, Yeah. So those could be like equally real people like public Ali might not have been there his whole life, but you know, he made money by, by becoming this character. Right. And this is one of the things it was a conscious decision he made early in his career because he heard gorgeous George, you know, promoting a fight on the radio or promoting a wrestling match on the radio. And he said, well, what if I do that in boxing? Um, but also, when you start reading like the in-depth Ali biographies, and especially when you find him like quoted in real time, close to like his toughest fights, he's very honest about like in public, I'm going to destroy Joe Fazier, but in private, hey man, this is going to be a really tough fight. And you know, the bravado was part of selling the fights, you know, and. So it's it's a character that he plays, but it's also him because this is what he does. Uh, but like the competitor in him knows, always knew what a challenge he was going to be up against. Because like if the competitor in him really thought everyone he talked about, every every opponent he came up against was uh, as unqualified as trash talking Ali would 
say he, he the guy was yeah he would have lost a bunch of these fights but he knew to take these people really seriously no matter what he was saying in public like mm-hmm. in private he took you know Frazier uh, uh Norton for him and he took these guys really seriously Morgan, when he passed away in 2016, I was listening back to you went on the the CBC and, and were kind of asked about um, uh, athlete, the search for the next Ali, and and you sort of outlined how that's a that's a futile thing in the sports landscape because uh, society's changed, people have changed. But I was also thinking um, that of course media has changed like endlessly. He was a perfect a perfect person for the three channels let me go on worldwide world of sports or dick cavett and talk to 40 million people at one time so i as a thought experiment what is what is muhammad ali like in a in a social media age the challenge with older athletes like previous generations of athletes in the social media age i don't like to me the perception of them seems to go to one of two extremes it's either that guy was never really good because look at these bums he's playing against. Mm-hmm. Um, look how small they are, but like those are the people that they had to compete against. What are you going to do? Or it is all you ever see is the person's highlights and you start to think that every moment of every fight in his career was like the highlight. Right. Um, and, and, you know, this happens with Michael Jordan all the time. Like the ghost of Michael Jordan is the best basketball player ever (laughs) (laughs) right so no matter what lebron james does you're like you're not as good as the michael jordan of my memory you're not as good as the michael jordan highlights on youtube okay i guess um and so ali like yeah you can clip you know highlights from his fights and those can go viral on social media like the one that go like the clip i see the most often is like this exhibition with michael dokes where he's in the corner He's backed up into the corner. Michael Dokes is swinging and missing all these punches. Right. Which I really think was uh, choreographed. Okay. Because Michael Dokes in real life was a very accurate puncher. And this is clearly old fat Ali. And like, if you watch a lot of Ali, you recognize this immediately as old fat Ali. But if all you ever know is the name Muhammad Ali and the idea of Muhammad Ali, you don't know that this is that the person you're seeing in this exhibition is very different from the person that won the gold medal. Very different from the guy that beat Sonny Liston. This is old fat Ali and, and Michael Dokes can't lay a glove on him, which is kind of preposterous. And also the fact that like all of this ducking and dodging, like it's Ali looking like Mayweather or, 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 or Pernell Whitaker when like, if you've seen these fights, especially that vintage Ali, he got hit like a lot. <laughs> Mm-hmm. A lot. And that's why there's never any context for that clip. But in the social media age, that can substitute as like what a Muhammad Ali fight really was like when it wasn't. Like the years that Ali was elusive, it was because not because of upper body movement and head movement, it was because he was so fast. Feet. Because of his feet. Yes. And then when he came back from suspension, came back from the three and a half year layoff, he was slower. Mm-hmm. It's not as fast and that's when he was getting hit and the guy we see in that clip is like even old compared to that guy right and so yeah like i haven't i can't prove that it's choreographed but i'm pretty sure it's choreographed sure i want to stay on this idea of, of loss of context and talking about him as like a, a social figure and a, an activist athlete um because I I was watching your your show the other day and you guys were talking about Novak Djokovic and the situation in Australia and you were wisely advising people don't go to jail for Novak Djokovic, <laughs> which I thought was fair. Um, but I I wonder like is there a is there a necessity for people to try and continue to understand like the context of Muhammad Ali's life in this era where say. Aaron Rodgers has the audacity to evoke Dr. King when talking about like misleading people about his vaccine yeah, decision. See, and that's what I was going to say, but that's also what the problem is, okay. right? Is that in this era, every bad faith actor will compare himself to Dr. King, will compare himself to Ali as if what they're going through is commensurate with what Dr. King overcame with what Ali contended with, you know, when he lost his boxing license. Um, 
And so, like, I'm sure Novak Djokovic, in his brain, thinks he's Muhammad Ali. Right. And his fans think he's Muhammad Ali. And that's the difficult part is to get people to understand that these are not direct parallels. Um, And again, it is telling, like, whenever... Like the same groups of people that want to tell you racism doesn't exist when one of them wants to portray themselves as like oppressed and hard done by, they will compare their suffering to something famous black individuals have undergone or that black people as a group have suffered. Oh yeah, these vaccine mandates are just like Jim Crow. No, they're not. You know how I know they're not? Because if you lived under Jim Crow, you wouldn't say, oh, yeah, this whites only bathroom is, is as bad as uh, having to get a needle against smallpox. Like, it ain't the same thing. Right. You know what I mean? And there's still a few people alive, you know, who are old enough to remember the whites only bathrooms, who are also old enough to remember uh, the first polio vaccine. And <laughs> one of these things was a stain, you know, and one of these things was welcome, mm-hmm. right? Public health. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, so so Aaron Rodgers, same thing, like in his brain. Yeah, he thinks he's Martin Luther King. He thinks he's Muhammad Ali standing up against the U.S. government when these things are not the same. But it takes like understanding to understand that. But if you get get people to understand in the first place, it's very easy to get people to misunderstand and then, you know, get really aggressive and arrogant with their misunderstanding. Mm hmm. I am immunized, not vaccinated. Uh, the woke cancel culture is going to dig my grave. Aaron Hall, Aaron, Aaron Rodgers said something like that. Like, right. Come on. If that were true, you wouldn't be about to win the MVP, man. Well, exactly. Um, okay. A couple more. I'll, I'll, I'll get you out of here. So I, I just want to talk a little bit more about the, the Carla Rotella essay that you sent me about the, the sort of failed indefinitely suspended uh, Ang Lee um movie uh it's a great piece and i'll 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 link to it um but i'm just curious do you as someone who's covered boxing for so long do you have any use for any dramatized boxing movies or do they all bug you in one way or another like when i'm just fully willing to suspend my disbelief is something different so like whenever rocky three or rocky four comes on sure i'll watch it because those are so farcical yeah you just know that that's what they are um like the idea that Rocky's going to train for a heavyweight title fight in this cabin in Siberia with no sparring. <laughs> yeah, that's true. If you lift enough wagons, you don't need to spar. <laughs> right. And, and, and like the Creed movies, it's the same thing. Like I'm, I'm having trouble distinguishing the first Creed from the second Creed. Yeah. There's one where Rocky trained him to fight Rat, Drago's kid. The second one, yeah. Yeah, and Creed is like, Adonis Creed is training like in a, in a hobo camp. Which, I don't remember this, but yeah. You know, he's in that camp in the desert and he's doing his road work in like the midday sun. Like that's not, like that's, the, that's people's idea of how boxers train, but that's not how boxers train. And again, you're thinking about like nutrition, like Adonis Creed was big and muscular and very lean. Like that is, he has the physique of someone who pays very careful attention to his diet. But in this film, he's just with a bunch of dudes in a camp and they're cooking over like this open fire eating you know beans out of a can that's you're not getting enough calories to have the physique that you have but this is what people think boxing is and so we're even um in the boxer the fighter the one with marky mark and he's playing mickey ward the fighter yeah yeah because there is a formula to these ones like for sure rocky started with this formula and kind of grew into this franchise but like if you are pitching a movie and say, hey, I got a boxing movie about a Catholic white guy from a working class city in the Northeast who wins something despite long odds, that movie's getting made. Mm-hmm. Whether it's fictional, like South Paul was fiction. Believe for this was the Vinnie Pazienza story that got made. The fighter. No, no disrespect to Mickey Ward. Like Mickey Ward was not like a world champion champion. But he was in some really exciting fights. But the point is, like the training sequences in that film where Marky Mark is in the gym working the pads. And so he's Mark Wahlberg as Mickey Ward hitting the pads 
uh, in a way that was very obviously ripped off from like YouTube videos of Floyd Mayweather. Hyper choreographed patty cake. Choreographed, really intricate pad work, uh-huh. which Mayweather does. A lot of other fighters don't do. Mickey Ward certainly does not do. No, <laughs> that's true. It would be the furthest thing from it. Yeah. But this is what, because Mayweather got so popular with these HBO 24-7 documentaries, this oh, is yeah. what oh, man. Uh, you know, popular audiences started to think that boxing training was like, as opposed to that just being a drill that he did. There are attempts to, to make boxing look realistic, but they're not realistic in the way they do it. Films would be a lot more interesting if they were more realistic. Sure. And that's a great point, is that there is ample stuff on the table to explore that doesn't fall in the same, yeah, old narrative. Well, yeah, and you could make better movies about the reality of boxing than you can, but that people keep making about, like, what people who don't watch boxing, what their idea of boxing is. Yeah. Because, again, their idea of boxing is... Uh, Adonis Creed in a hobo camp eating beans out of a can, but it's still somehow built like Schwarzenegger. Like that's not how right. any of this works. Last thought: What is um, what is a a segment or chapter of Ali's career that you would like to see a documentary or a movie about, or just see explored further? I'm surprised no one in Canada this is has done more with Ali and. George Shavala, like there's, there are some documentaries on it, but like, and again, with Ali documentaries, it doesn't even matter if it's been done already. You just do it again. And people, <laughs> yeah. just, and people just act like it's new. Um, Cause that's an interesting era in his career. He's, he's almost about, I mean, he is in exile essentially, but they haven't taken away his passport or license yet. And the first fight with, with Shavala is right after he says, I got a quarrel with the Viet Cong. Hmm. He says that in January of 1966, the Chavalo fight is in March. And the reason that fight winds up in Toronto against George Chavalo is that all these different jurisdictions in the U.S., they don't want to give him a license. And then, because uh, I think he's supposed to fight Ernie Terrell. And Ernie Terrell is like, well, part of my payday is, you know, from the gate, from ticket sales. And in all these places, nobody wants to pay tickets. They're all mad at Ali. They don't want to pay to watch him fight. So this is going to mess up my money. I don't want to fight this guy. And so George Shavala's like, well, shh, I'll fight him. And so George Shavala ends up taking the fight on, you know, three weeks notice. Um, yeah, but like, there's that. Um, just like, I'm surprised there hasn't been more about these two fights with Sonny Liston. Mm-hmm. It literally take place. Like one's at the very bottom of the United States in Miami. The other one's like in Maine. <laughs> Right. You know, and everything that happens in between these two fights, you know, and Blood Brothers gets at that. Um, But again, this is the thing about Ali, like his career is so long and every, at least the first half of his career, like every fight also intersects with like some big turning point in U.S. history or the Vietnam War or the civil rights movement is that like, so there's always like that instant context. And you could also just make one Again, on the, like the stuff that people don't want to see, because you know, I watch boxing, and then every time there's a, a, a novelty fight, people tell me who don't watch a lot of boxing, this is proof that boxing is dead. Hmm. You mean a, a mixed martial arts fighter is going to fight a retired retired MMA fighter is fighting a YouTube star because boxing is dead? And you have to explain to people like you know Muhammad Ali fought Lyle Alzado, like the football player. And didn't even really look that good against Lala because, again, this is fat Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali fought Antonio Inoki, fought a pro wrestler, 15 rounds. So you can't tell me that boxing isn't healthy like it was in the Ali days because of novelty fights. Muhammad Ali also embarked in these novelty fights. But you could make, like, a a documentary about, like, you know, that six-year stretch of his active career that people don't like talking about. Mm -hmm. I don't even watch those fights. Sure. And this is the beauty of like being older. We can look at the totality of someone's career. And if I don't feel like watching Ali versus Jean-Pierre Koopman, then I won't. 
the lion of flanders like I- good job you i think you pulled the weirdest opponent that was good <laughs> i can just watch ali versus cleveland williams like young fast ali uh-huh. right and i can you know and i recognize that old slow ali is out there but like if you know if i have a spare hour you know on a winter weekend i'm not going to feel it watching a ali versus spinks i'm going to watch you know one of the fraser fights or like because this is one of the other things, and Lou Moore points this out in the story I did in, in, in the New York Times, like where the public tide starts to turn in Ali's favor after he loses to Frazier the first time. And this is when newspaper reporters start finally calling him Ali instead of Cassius Clay. But it's like, okay, you've been humbled, cocky, arrogant, brash, black person. You've been humbled, so now we can uh, treat you better. Um, and I think we in the sports media world too, like to our detriment, like we just, we lionize people who triumph like over not just adversity, but like their, their shortcomings. Oh, what's Ali's best performance? Oh, when you fought with the broken jaw against Ken Norton, well, that third performance against Frazier was so courageous, blah, blah, blah. Like me, what I want to see is this person at their best when they had everything together, like how good are they at their best? I don't, it's not that I don't care, but I'm just not as interested in, well, how much can you endure once you're fatter and slower and like more vulnerable? Like when everything is at its best, how good were you? So like the the Ali fight against uh, like Cleveland Williams, I want to say it was 1966. That's the best heavyweight boxer anyone's ever seen. Right. That's what I want to look at. Maybe the best Ali movies out there are some of those 60s fights. So go check those out, folks. Um, Morgan, Williams, man. Like that's, he's such a marvel in that fight, man. It's, it's incredible. A- um, when they start making Jean-Pierre Koopman movies, you got to come back. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks so much for your time. Uh, this was a lot of fun. All right. You guys be safe. I don't have a mark on my face, yeah. and I upset Sonny Lister, and I just turned 22 years old. I must be the greatest. Right. I told the world, I talk to God every day. If God's with me, can't nobody be against me. I shook up the world. I shook up the world. I am the king of the world. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Hold it, you're not that pretty. I'm a bad man. I shook up the world. I shook up the world. Thanks again to Morgan Campbell. Uh, what a pleasure and an honor to have someone of, of his caliber uh, on the show. Um, if perchance you wanted more discussion of like specific Ali titles, if you're coming at this more from like a like a cinephile perspective, I got you covered right here. These are my top three favorite Muhammad Ali movies. The first is 2001, Ali, directed by Michael Mann, starring Will Smith. Um, a movie that people and critics at the time and audiences at the time like did not like for a couple different reasons. Um, a lot of people are sort of weirded out by how cold and distant it is. Muhammad Ali is not like a lot of fun in the movie, which is odd because, um, y- you know, joy and 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 zeal and laughter and uh being like the one of the preeminent television celebrities of the time is like something that he was great at and then there are other people that just look at the will smith performance and they're just like that's not muhammad ali slam the book closed whatever doesn't move like him doesn't talk like him doesn't look like him we're done like a lot of michael mann nerds i would defend the movie for a couple different reasons Chief among them being that the first 25 minutes and the last 20 minutes are just breathtaking filmmaking, particularly like the rush out of the gate in this kind of time shifting montage of Ali training in Miami with a Sam Cooke performance with flashbacks to sort of his radicalization or at least his 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 deep discontent growing up in, in Louisville, Kentucky and 
and seeing his dad, who was a painter, um, do likenesses of blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesuses, and 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 seeing uh, seeing Emmett Till on the front page of, of newspapers, you you sort of get this sense all at once of um, the the verve and the searching and the prodigiousness that was driving 22-year-old Ali to win the title against all odds against Sonny Liston in, in 1964. I'm, I'm not the first person to say it's maybe the best 20 minutes of Michael Mann's career as a director. Um, while also then leading into a movie <laughs> who I will grant you the middle hour, the middle 80 minutes is so intricately wrought in terms of like the people around Muhammad Ali and what things looked like and what happened to him. But script wise is like very shapeless. Um, Like sometimes it'll feel unlike most Hollywood boxing movies. Like it's like building up to the big fight, like the Joe Frazier fight in 1971, but there won't be any momentum or payoff. And it's like, what are we doing here, Michael? Why why did you structure and or not structure the movie this way while also then paying all of this attention in these like three different cuts he has? He pays more and more attention to like the FBI and the CIA surveilling Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X and uh, even going so far as to putting in um, scenes of like the, the CIA giving the go-ahead to assassinate Patrice Lumumba in the Congo in the early 60s. And it's just like, what does this have to do with this glorious man <laughs> other than like he would later fight in Zaire. It's very curious, but I think what Michael Mann has done in a way that I do think kind of damns the movie, but he's sort of like displaced and depersonalized like a lot of the conflict in Ali's life and spread it out onto the world because it was there of course but then it creates just kind of like this the this shroud of uh, of evil and tension and puppeteering all around him and you, what you really understand is that like he couldn't afford to like to mess around or to waffle or to not stand by his convictions because look at like the conspiratorial apparatuses of the time, whether they be uh, governmental or within the nation of Islam or any of this. Um, it's a very curious approach to making the movie in a one that I, I would, if you thought it didn't work, I wouldn't be mad at you for two seconds. One of the great things about this movie though, is I do think that boxing has never looked better in a Hollywood film. Uh, Oscar-winning cinematographer Emmanuel Lubezki, um, who had a, some Oscar success recently uh, shooting in your Ritu movies. I mean, he is—he's uh, a virtuoso. He's—he's he's one of the best out there. Um, but the boxing looks amazing. The editing is so smart, and unlike most boxing movies, like the—the the editing isn't for trickery. It's, it's vision. It's artistic license. I mean, you see Will Smith moving around the ring and, and looking pretty good. I mean, he clearly trained a lot. Um, but then it'll switch between film and digital, and you'll get this, like, really kind of intense, um, like, box of the shoulders to the, to the chest. Like, only that middle part, you'll see people just, like, kind of pounding on each other, which sort of uh, hides the seams really well, but seems to be more about, like, toggling between like the audience view of the fight and what's it like to be in the fight, which is just such a stupendous choice. Another thing this movie really has on its side is that because of Ali's specific boxing style, it feeds into Hollywood choreography that you'd never get in a movie like, say, Creed or Rocky or whatever. Like You can choreograph a punch missing in a way that is breathtaking, in a way that you cannot choreograph a punch landing because... Will Smith is not going to be knocked out by these guys, even though uh, he does let them hit him sometimes. And you know what else? The Rope-A-Dope films well. Hanging out on the ropes while Charles Schofer just like pummels the top of your hips over and over again to pretending to be George Foreman. Looks really good. Doesn't look fake. So um, 
man's absolute obsessive technical geekery about the action of these specific fights um, blends really well with what could actually be put on film. So I know people don't like it. I think Ali is pretty good, despite itself. Too fast! Too fast! The king is going home to get his throne. Yeah, when I get to Africa, we're going to get it on because we don't get alone. So we try to get the champions of the sports world, champions of the music world. Number two is a documentary from 1996 called When We Were Kings. Um, this is directed by the late Leon Gast. Um, it's comprised mostly of... Uh, verite footage that Gast got um, following Ali around in Kinshasa Zaire leading up to the Rumble of the Jungle in 1974. Um, and as it turns out, in both this and my number one choice, that's the best way to capture the glory of Muhammad Ali, to film him constantly and see what he does in the first hour of being filmed versus the 17th hour of being filmed versus what he does when everybody's watching what versus what he does when he knows just you're watching see what he shows you that's what's so incredible about this one is just kind of being there and seeing the bizarre uh electricity the circus that comes with putting on a heavyweight prize fight in the in the developing totalitarian <laughs> world uh in 1974 um because there was this big like music festival with james brown and, and curtis mayfield that was supposed to happen like leading up to the fight and, and you, you get them trying to like put that show on and leon gas cameras are just like practically up in people's nostrils sometimes like the sweat coming off james brown who of course is one of our greatest sweaters cold sweaters um it's unbelievable and what develops is this great kind of thesis around how Ali wins one of the more famous fights in boxing history, despite being an underdog again, which is just that he understood the significance of what he was doing there, what he was doing in the ring at age 32, taking some punishment to win the fight, what he was doing in Zaire as a global icon. Uh, what he was doing in the storybooks of his life. And you can just kind of see that like George Foreman doesn't sense the moment, but Ali's ability to sense moments is one of his great intangible, unquantifiable skills as, as an athlete is, I guess in, I guess in basketball, they'd call it being clutch. I don't think clutchness really exists in, in boxing, but just understanding that like, this is the biggest stage, and my time is right now. Um, that's the amazing part of, of when we were kings, and the, the 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 fight is really only like the last like eight minutes of the doc. It's in a ninety minute movie, which is streaming on Criterion Collection right now. By the way, they just put out a Blu Ray maybe last year. They spend most of their time on the stakes and the culture and the pageantry of it all. Uh, and some great talking heads from uh, Bill Plimpton and Norman Mailer, who were two of the great, albeit white, mythologizers of Muhammad Ali's life. Um, but I mean, that's part of like their legacy as writers is just that they 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 were they were close to him and and, and they they understood or or else they they brandished these folkloric ideas of what it was like to be around him that, that live on even, even till today. And it's great just to hear like Norman Mailer, like posit things about the fight where it's like, I've never heard anyone say that Foreman wanted to punish him because Ali, like landing so many lead right hands in the opening round was disrespectful, but that was Mailer's read on the fight. Um, so everybody, everybody has a different take. Um, when we were Kings won an Oscar that year, same year that Ali lights the Olympic torch in Atlanta. It, it gets a little like a little bit like a Wheaties box at the end. There's definitely like a we are a legacy cementer, like let's win that Oscar kind of feeling to the end. That's a little I don't know, uh, try hardy. It, it's sensing its own moment. Let's say that, um, which makes it a little much at some point. But uh, otherwise, it's a very svelte. Um, very powerful documentary. 
Albert Mazels has been making films for 53 years, and with his brother David, made some of the most iconic and important documentaries of our time. Some guy that knew of us as well-known filmmakers thought, somebody's got to film this uh, upcoming fight, and we knew nothing about boxing, but with great enthusiasm, we made the film, and it turned out just beautifully. Number one for me is a 2009 film called Muhammad and Larry. It's about the 1980 fight between Ali and Larry Holmes. It was the penultimate fight of Muhammad Ali's career. And it is, uh, in all rights, a very sad one. Muhammad Ali should not have been fighting in 1980, and he especially should not have been fighting one of the great underrated heavyweight champions of all time, Larry Holmes, in the prime of his life. It was a bad idea. This documentary is a, is a, is a post-mortem of sorts for why it was such a bad idea, but why it's, why it's essence is a bad idea tied into um, who Ali was to everyone in his life, those who knew him and those who didn't. It is a brilliantly accordioned, like 53 minutes of just sickening love and, and compromised hope for what people thought Muhammad Ali could could still do in his in his late 30s in the twilight of, of his life um, fascinating story too so so it's got all of this verite footage of Ali training for the fight that was captured by the Mazel's brothers the the two great documentarians of the mid to late 20th century who, who made films like Grey Gardens and Gimme Shelter and for posterity they captured all this kind of like uh, this twilight glimmer of Ali channeling the dramatic irony of his impending loss into into pure vaudeville for anyone who would who would watch. Um, then, of course, nobody wanted the footage because uh, networks, studios they didn't want to make a movie about Ali. Um, you know the declining function of his brain and kidneys uh, being ravaged. So this footage was just on ice until the 30 for 30 series uh, in the late aughts. Um, Bradley Kaplan teams up with Albert Mazels to, to finish it. But don't, don't get me wrong. Like I, I really don't think that this movie is a, it doesn't feel like a critique of Ali or his legacy. It's a, it is still in its own ironic way, a testament to his power, his power to entertain himself and everyone who ever watched him away from the obvious, which is that his unmatched way with commanding a limelight was not enough to beat father time. Like his skill as an entertainer, had eclipsed and lasted longer than his skill as a boxer. Muhammad and Larry is certainly the best of the 30 for 30 series, in my opinion, and I think it's one of the best sports docs ever made, in in no small part because the, the Maisel's brothers just, they knew, they knew exactly how to be flies on the cabin wall in Deer Lake, and they, they knew exactly uh, how to talk to Ali and, and when and what questions to ask the people around him. I mean, to see Bundini Brown, who was uh, as as much of a an unreal person as Ali, <laughs> to see him be asked, like, what's he like deep down, um, and say, like a little boy. It, it puts a lump in my throat right now. Um, he's someone who's earned a, a huge amount of uh, reverence for challenging and changing the tide of uh, American history and sports and um, popular conception of, of civil rights and, and, and treating people the way that they, uh, that they want to be treated and calling them the names that they, they want to be called. Um, yeah, Muhammad and Larry's a great doc. Uh, that's it. <laughs> Happy birthday to the greatest of all time. Um, and coincidentally, it's, it's Martin Luther King Day as well. So, uh, in their honor, um, try to do something just 
try to do something uh, true and good and brave today. Um, thanks so much for listening. Um, I'm not sure that this podcast was was any of those things, uh, but it's certainly a, a celebration that I've been looking to, forward to for a while. Uh, be Real will be back in one week's time. Uh, me and Noah are talking about uh, some 2021 family nightmare movies. We're going to talk about Spencer and Shiva Baby and uh, The Humans, um, which is a lot of fun. We just got done recording that one. So um, happy new year, everybody. I hope it's not too late to, to say that and we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks for listening.